Holy Saturday, or if you will, the harrowing of hell. You got it? All over the world, the church celebrates Saturday with um, as zealous a focus as they have on their third day resurrection. And I'm going to get your attention to this for in a way that maybe you've not had it before. Our Lord rose on the third day. The first day was his suffering and entombment. The second day was the Sabbath day. Holy Saturday, the Sabbath. And then on the third day, he arose. What we don't know is that his victory over principalities and powers was first manifested on Good Friday, absolutely applied on Holy Saturday, and known to all of us on the third day. But we were the last to know. All right, we got some work to do here because there's some, some themes that, that you're not used to. Let's do a brief regress. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Sir, we would see a sign from you. See, I'm in Matthew 12 here. So we regressed. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, it, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will be the son of man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And this was Jesus, all right? Now, let's, let's think about this Jonah thing. The Bible says that Jonah cried out from the depths of Sheol. Let me give you a little piece that you probably haven't thought about in the past. Most people say, how did Jonah live three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? Answer, he didn't. Say, I hadn't thought about that, preacher. <laughs> if you're crying out from Sheol, you're crying out from the place of the dead. The likelihood is that he died and was raised from the dead. And he was the sign that Jesus would draw on years later. If you look at Holy Saturday iconography, y'all know what iconography is? Oh boy. <laughs> iconography, an icon is what we would call a picture or a painting. But they, just, they were said to write an icon. They didn't paint an icon, they wrote an icon. Why? Because when you wrote an icon, you were telling the gospel in picture. And so anywhere you go in the world where, where, there's, where there's icons, those are visual depictions of the glory of God and of the gospel. Never judge something you don't understand, right? Now, the reason I brought that up is because the ancient iconography that had to do with Holy Saturday 
usually depicts the resurrection out of the belly of a great fish. And there's usually some indication of, of, his, of his coming out with the likes of Adam and Eve and Enoch and the saints. Those who believed, the ones that are spoken of in the chapter on faith, the ones that we know about. There's a story told in the, in the Holy Saturday that we, we forget about. Um, unfortunately, we've captured some sort of a, a we've, become, we've become philosophical Platonists about heaven. And our picture of heaven is more like, hev- like, like, the, like uh, Platonic philosophy than it is like the Bible. Because usually we picture disembodied uh, spirits. And usually we picture going to a place away. And uh, <laughs> I had the amazing experience of reading Plutarch, a pagan priest. And it sounded like a message that could have been preached at a Baptist funeral. Because we've missed that. Some of the solid stuff of the Bible. Tonight and tomorrow we're going to get it back. You want to get it back? Let's get it back. But think about it this way. Long before our Lord Jesus, there were those who went to sleep in faith. Those who went to sleep. As yet without seeing the promises. And we don't know very much about it. So we get a few hints here and there and we surmise about it. But I think that Holy Saturday unpacks some of it, the harrowing of hell. Okay, say hell. Hell. In church. I'm going to give you a little clue here because this is something that's tripped me up over time. Hell, as it's been, the, the word hell is one of those, it's just like any other word. It has usage more than it has meaning. We're, we're learning more and more that you discover a word by its usage. And hell is one of those interesting words that has now, in our mind, hell means in a very fixed way the final state of those who, are, who die without Christ. Hasn't always been that way. For a very long time, uh, after, after the New Testament, hell was just a synonym of the word Hades. And Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, which simply means the place of the dead. So I say that because when I say harrowing hell, and when I start telling you what I'm going to talk about, you're going to think I'm saying, what? You're going you're gonna to get weird. And let me be the one who's weird. Y'all don't get weird. But our Lord, 
Our Lord is gonna, is gonna rescue those who are in the place of the dead, awaiting for the day of their redemption. And I had to get my head on, I had to get myself straightened out a little bit from, because let me, let me tell you, nobody, anybody, anybody who says they've got all this figured out, uh-uh. No, no, let me just tell you, I'm puzzling over this. Because on this particular doctrine, what we get is pieces of a puzzle that it's not that easy to assemble. And so what I offer, it's very strange because I offer what I offer very boldly and very timidly. Meaning I'm, I'm not that certain of the details, but I'm certain of the outcome. Can we go with that? All right, so, so here was the prophecy that, that Jesus had given them. And here is the, and I'm telling you, the ancient church immersed themselves in it. I've never, I never heard, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Bible only guy. I never heard what I told y'all tonight in any, any Baptist sermon I ever preached or heard. Then we come to the death of Christ and the resurrection of the saints. And I get, to, I get to do what I did last night. So we're regressing still. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Just this point, if you, if you were in the Good Friday service, you heard a little bit about it. But just this point that I wanna make, Jesus relinquished his life. It was not taken from him. He relinquished his life in the garden. He relinquished his life when he allowed himself to be turned over to Caiaphas. He relinquished his life when he allowed himself to be turned over to Pilate. When he allowed them to beat him with many stripes and crown him with a crown of thorns and nail him to a tree. And he relinquished his life when he was on the tree. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. And they came to him surprised that he was dead because it takes longer than that to die on a Roman cross. But Jesus, though he was at the mercy of evil, was in the hands of God. One more thing that I always wanna say that I have, always, I have come to think of as a hint of the glory of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, if you, were, if you follow your Bible very closely, it says the darkness came at noon and it lasted till three. And if you read carefully, what you'll note is some stuff happened after the darkness ended. Some of the things Jesus said, if you read them in the text, it appears they were said after the darkness lifted. It is finished. Why are you saying that? Because I want, to, I want to say one thing that I'm, going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you really strongly. Jesus did not suffer on Holy Saturday. The deal was done on the cross. It was done when he breathed his last. That's faint praise right there. Because, and I say this because I've heard some odd doctrines over the years. And they're troubling to me. They're odd doctrines. They're mostly rooted in people who have clever minds and people who have ideas that there's a level of punishment that Jesus had to undergo in order to secure our release. Not so. 
He secured our release because he surrendered his life unto death. And there was, listen, remember what he said about the enemy? He's got nothing on me. Death could not hold him. Now, I can say a whole lot about his sacrifice, but what I'm saying to you is that on Holy Saturday, Jesus was dealing it out, not taking it in. This is a glorious day. Study the church's history. It's a glorious day. It's a day of his glorious victory. Glorious victory. What he suffered, he suffered in his flesh on the cross. And when the time of his flesh was relinquished, the time of his agony was relinquished as well. If you want to debate about that, make an appointment in about six weeks when I get back and and we'll work on it. Uh, I can, I, I can actually, I could tell you some clever doctrines that I've heard, but I actually hate to do that because you might believe it. It's kind of like when I'm on Facebook, there's people that on Facebook, I'll only reply to them in private messaging because I don't want anybody to know I'm talking to them. Because <laughs> I don't want you to go over their page and get deceived by the nonsense they're spewing. I had to find out the hard way that people follow me over there. Can't get this stuff just anywhere. <laughs> and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That doesn't need any commentary, does it? And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. And I said on Friday, I said, I don't know what happened here and you don't either. And now I know. Because when I don't know something, I go, it's, I'm not okay with not knowing something. So now I at least got an idea. Can we go with that? And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. What? And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many as what? As testimony to the glory of Christ. Because listen, when Jesus died on that cross, the the accusations that held anybody and anything that was left of death was done. And I don't understand it all. What I don't understand most of all is that they they came in bodies. I don't quite understand that. And, And you can help me with it. I'll be glad for you to do that. But I don't have any problem with the fact that this is a demonstration of his glory and of his victory. And it would have still been impossible to understand for those who were experiencing it, but on the third day, but on the third day, but on the third day, I thought that Mags demonstrated in a very interesting way the musing of the disciples over what they'd been told on the third day, but what they couldn't puzzle out. And I like it. Listen, this is one of the beautiful things about art. This is why we need, this is why we need Christian art. We need Christian poetry, we need Christian songs. This is why we need Christians to enter back into the world of storytelling because there's things that can be said in stories that give people a longing and a yearning that can't be said with words, can't be said with sermons, can't be said with prose. It's, we're, we're desperate. All through the history of mankind, the believers have had a strong representation, a strong presence, a strong place 
Listen, don't go try to find your place in Hollywood. Just find your place in the arts. Find your place in the beauty of what God is doing and find your place in the storytelling, uh, the storytelling glory. Because storytellers change minds. I can't go too far into that right now. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. All that was introduction. Here's our text. The burial of the body. Y'all know me. You know how I get there. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And beautiful little narrative that's kind of followed by John and a bit here by Matthew. And, and we, learn about, we learn about Nicodemus and, and we learn about Joseph. And listen, don't ever be surprised. Jesus has people everywhere. Don't ever be surprised. And this is why I can be talking to the most hostile audience. And I know that there's somebody with ears to hear. There's somebody with a heart to believe. There's somebody whose heart will be burning. And even if their courage is faint, you notice that God didn't need Joseph's courage. And yes, it took some courage to do what he did here. But, you know, the deed was done. So God set this man aside. I, I love to tell the story of Nicodemus because, you know, when Jesus told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And I've always imagined Nicodemus because he was in that council of those who, by overwhelming vote, condemned Jesus. And so he was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. And I've always wondered what it must have been like to be Nicodemus in the moment when they lifted him up. And Nicodemus took his breath like nobody else. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate ordered it to be given to him and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And of course, we know elsewhere that it was secured by Pilate. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, Now we're into Saturday. After the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So for anybody who, you know, wondered if his words were getting through, they got through enough. They got through enough. And if the disciples didn't, have hold of it. The enemies did. Therefore, he ordered the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of the soldiers. 
Go make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay. It's very interesting. Um, By by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm hearing that um, in academics, we went through a long period of time where academics um, didn't believe this stuff. But, But something has happened, and that is that academic scholars of New Testament studies have done such good work that what they've demonstrated is that the is that the um, ancient writings have as, as much and more reason to be believed as any other ancient writings, as a minimum. So that lots of, his, lots of uh, New Testament scholars who are purely historians and don't believe anything to do with inspiration have had their minds changed and are now trying to in their own way, puzzle out what's going on. Because they said, even if we don't believe any of this is true, the records are good documents. Okay? That's not universal. But what I'm finding out is that we went through a period that it was, there was great skepticism. And as better history's been done, we have a period where, where scholarship is, is leaning in. So that's really interesting to me. I'm fascinated with that. Even though I don't think that stuff will, will accomplish what we want because you know what it's going to take, don't you? It's going to take those who hear the voice. You're going to have to hear him say to you, Lazarus, <laughs> you're going to have to hear it. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So let's see if we can make some sense. Um, look at this. This is the Apostles' Creed. You guys know the Apostles' Creed? How many of you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed? Hmm, pretty good. I've tried it a couple times, and this is just the first part of it. I've, I've tried it a couple times in church, but every, listen, every, I, I love it because Every time I do the Apostles' Creed in a, like a charismatic church or like a Bible church, it's so funny. Somebody gets religious about it not being said. It's funny how the religious spirit can cut both ways. But there's actually a reason that bothers people. So here it is. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Now that's the phrase that makes people check out. In fact, for a long time, it made me check out. And I've learned this. Nowadays, when I get offended, I I go, what's going on here? Because I hate to admit this, but half the time when I'm offended, it's just stupidity. (laughs) Y'all know I'm making a case against you, don't you? So I I gave you the key earlier on, and that is to say that for a very long time, hell 
was grouped with um, Hades. And so it had more to do with the place of the dead and it was not affixed on the, the place of eternal torment. Now, why do you want to do this, Alan? I said, because I really want you to understand that something glorious has happened in this gospel. Tomorrow we're going to look really closely or look a lot more at the resurrection. But today, I want to do this. He descended into hell. What did he do? The entire church for its entire history. And by the way, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. Apostles' Creed. Don't give me the nonsense that it's a Catholic document. Because if you do that, you just gave away all of church history to the Catholics and nullified it, meaning you don't even have Jesus left. Can we talk? You know you got your Bible uh, about the time that these creeds were written, don't you? By some, by some people who compiled these books and said, these are God. You know God used a human pro- Do y'all know this stuff? This stuff didn't fall out of the heaven. So what I'm saying is, there's much of the church history that we're making a mistake to leave it in the past. It belongs to us. This is my history. This is my king. This is my Jesus. These are my scriptures. This is my creed. I tell everybody, I believe the Apostles' Creed, even the parts I don't understand. And this is the only one that I used to didn't understand because I was so religious about it. Because I'm telling you, Jesus didn't go to the place of eternal damnation. He did not. But he did go to the place of the dead. By the way, you know why? Because if you understand your Bible yet, it, hadn't, it didn't exist yet. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that apparently everybody who had died was still alive and was waiting for this thing to turn out. He descended into hell. We'll do that third day, third day thing. So I've already given you a little bit of this. So Sheol is the place of the dead. Everyone went there. Hades, in the Greek understanding, is, is the place of the dead. Everyone went there. Now the Greeks parsed it out a little finer. And Jesus, in his time, wasn't that bothered about using it. And the apostles weren't bothered about using the way they parsed it out. They parsed it out to Elysium and Tartarus. Now, I know y'all know Elysium because you watched The Gladiator. Oh, and you're, some of you are going, oh, that's where I heard that word. Yes, that's where you heard that word. Uh, because if there's anything, he's put eternity in our hearts and human beings live with the expectation that this mortal flesh is not the end. We live hungering to be clothed upon from on high. And we get kind of arrogant about it. I love, I, listen, the way I like to talk to people who don't know Jesus, I, I don't ever threaten anybody with hell. Because guess what? Uh, you don't have really a biblical basis for doing that. 
Jesus threatened the Jews with judgment. They were the covenant people. It's always the covenant people that are in most trouble. But I love to talk to people about dead folks. People tell me about their, their dead relatives, and I say, you think, they'll, you think they're alive? Well, why do you think they're alive? When it gets down to it, you're going to be surprised. People don't know why they think it. Here's why they think it. Because partly because our Judeo-Christian faith has been so painted on the background of culture that they went, we'll take that piece right there. I'm going to keep that. So you want a great way to talk to people about? And you won't always get there because there's just, there, listen, there was something like 84% of people a few years ago who, who believed in, uh, who said they had some form of Christian faith. And, and then at the same, in the same poll, 40% of people believed in reincarnation. Some folks are just dumb as a box of rocks. But hey, here's the deal. When you go puzzling out the scripture and the words that are used, you'll go, this is confusing. In your translations, it's confusing. And we figure out that by the time of the New Testament, uh, Jesus told a story where it appeared that there was dead folks in torment and there was dead folks in comfort. And we went, hold up, what's going on here? And he said, well, we don't get our theology from parable. Right. But something's going on there. The parable's reflecting something. And then everybody remembers that, that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that, and by the way, I do believe that both of thieves started off as mockers. And I think one of those thieves got changed in the course of, experiencing Jesus next to him on the cross. And said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so don't forget it. Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Hold on to that one. That's a good word right there. That's a good word right there. So what happened to the thief on the cross? Well, he died and went right into comfort. I would say synonymous with Abraham's bosom. Now, as they began to work that out, um, some of them would believe that paradise, listen, they all believe that you died, you went under the earth. That was, you, you descend when you die. Partly that's the whole business of being buried anyway. But that was also the mythology. You descend. And, and, and paradise, if you, it's not used very much, but it's just a couple times in scripture. But the next time we do find it, it's Paul being taken up into paradise, being what? Taken what? Oh, something changed. So that the imagery now is that something with the death of Christ caused what was in one condition to be in another condition. Now, here's what I do with that. I go, hmm, 
And I don't get too dogmatic, but I go, that's still good news, right? Still good news. Now, that word Tartarus is only used one time in scripture in Peter's writings. And Peter confuses us all. Which I get tickled at because Peter's the guy who writes and when he says about Paul, he said, you know that guy that writes hard things? Then I say to people, have y'all read Peter's epistles? <laughs> Let me tell you what hard things are. Hard things are something that the other guy knows that you don't know. <laughs> and by the way, we probably would all agree if we've read the book of Romans that Paul writes hard things. Now, Gehenna, and this is why this is what's really important. For you and I, for our purposes, Gehenna is more like what we would call hell today. For example, if I was going to do the creed on a regular basis in the church, I would change the word from descended into hell to descended into Hades. Because uh, Hades doesn't carry the connotation that hell carries. Hell carried the connotation of Hades at one time, but does not now. Hell carries the connotation of Gehenna. Now, what was Gehenna? <coughs> Gehenna was a dumpster fire. Gehenna was the garbage heap where you take your garbage. And when you take your garbage to the garbage place, let me tell you what happens. The fire burns it and the worms eat it. And, and uh, that passage that says where the fire dies not and, and, and the worm does, does not fail... It doesn't have to do, that, that's not actually a passage about e- eternal conscious torment. It's simply a passage that says, if you go there, you're done. Because the worm and the fire are going to get their work done. You're going to be destroyed. And so that became the image of when you became to the place where your life was um, a dumpster fire. That, that, was, that was your destiny. And then interesting, the lake of fire is not used until the very last book of the Bible. And the lake of fire is where ultimately death and Hades are thrown into. But what happened on, but what happened on this day? I'm going to take you down one little rabbit hole. And we'll be done. Yes, that's what I was looking for. You don't have a slide with this text. I added it after I finished because I said they need this. So this is from 1 Peter. I want you to listen to this passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins. 1 Peter 3. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did he suffer? Bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. The book of Romans said that sin was condemned in the flesh in Christ Jesus. Meaning meaning that our Lord suffered a representative substitution. 
He suffered representing us, even as Adam sinned representing us. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, what is that? Now something happens here in Peter that'll mess you up. Because what happens next, it has two basic lines of interpretation, but I want you to hear it out. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Ah, Peter is telling us about the judgment that came on the world in the days of Noah. And while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He went and preached to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. (coughs) What happened in the days of Noah? Well, the Bible says the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And God said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. That act, what was happening in those days, that act was so egregious that God said, nothing but a great judgment can deal with this. And what this text says is that that resulted in spirits in prison. That means the offending ones were locked up. What's going on here? How many of y'all were in the Mayus Road the last time? Y'all tell them I'm going to go home. Do you know, you guys do understand, don't you, that we live in a war zone? That there's a great war going on? Do you know this? Do you actually know this in in your heart and mind? There's a great war going on. There's a war going on in the spirit. One of the things about being a Christian these days is that we live in a world that lives by a scientific worldview. And I start talking like this and people think I'm crazy. Well, I don't care. Because <clears throat> there's plenty that's outside of the reach of science. And anything in the invisible world is pretty much outside of their reach. So what I actually believe is being spoken of here is that there was a war that was in the heavens that was waged against God. And whatever happened in the days of Noah was, and was one of the big episodes in that war. Now, I'm not making this up. 
If you look in second temple literature, the book of Enoch, you'll find this stuff talked about. And actually, Peter is referring to that book and referring to what it says and talking about the war that is going on in the spirit realm. And the fact that the flood took care of a lot of that war, but not all. And what happened on this day was God brought a judgment. He came against principalities and powers and they were consigned to the place of the dead and they were imprisoned. And Jesus came and preached. Now, let me be sure you understand. This is not Jesus going and preaching euangelion. There's no good news here. This is a whole different word for preaching, for proclaiming. It's not a word that means he went to say good news. He went to say, it is finished. He went to say, he went to say, you're done. This is the victory of Christ over principalities and powers. This is the spoiling of principalities and powers. This is the exposure, the defeat of the enemy. This is why you have power over demons. This is why you have power. And you're not, this is why you're not subject to everything that comes along because you are in Christ and you're a new creation in Christ. This is, this is why we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a message about, this is not a message about preaching good news. Now, however, the one who went and preached, he also loosed the last bonds that held those that were his. And tomorrow, we'll talk about resurrection. We'll talk about what happens when we die. Because I'm like, yes, I know. But understand this. I love that that passage that flummoxes me that I read a while ago, and it still flummoxes me. It talks about the resurrection of bodies. Because Christianity is not about disembodied souls. It's about those who are raised to new life. And I'm starting to preach my sermon from tomorrow and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to do this. I want to tell you that Jesus went and plundered hell. I want you to know that Jesus is the one that can say he has the keys. Jesus is the one who is going to say in Matthew's gospel, all authority is given to me. He didn't, not because the enemy gave it to him, because remember when the enemy attempted to give him authority, when the enemy attempted to give him power, he wouldn't take it. Nope. He would not let the enemy give him what he came to plunder. And he made war and he won a great victory for us. And I want you to know that I've lived long enough that I've discovered what it's like to finally understand that the devil has no authority over me. I've lived long enough to finally understand what it means that I don't have to be afraid of the darkness. I've lived long enough to understand that, that what was over my head is now under my feet. I've lived long enough to understand who I am in Christ. And so when the demons come along and, and they say, Jesus, we know, Paul, we know, who are you? I'm like, I know who I am. 
Because I'm new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved us. I'm I'm set free. I've been given a command and a commission. This is why you can plant churches. This is why you can go out and (coughs) do exploits for God in the midst of a world that's passing loss to restrict you in every way. And you won't have to do it in a way that makes an ugly show of yourself. You'll do it because you have authority and you'll be given favor and you'll be able to do things that you don't think you can do. And this is why people like uh, people like the ones I named in prayer go to places where they say, you know, I feel like I'm emptying the ocean with a teaspoon. We're just, we're getting one soul at a time. We're getting one life at a time. We're getting, we're getting help to one person at a time. Why do they do it? Because they know they can. And they know every time, every time, every time, Every victory is the victory for Christ and his kingdom. All authority is given to us because the one who has all authority has extended it to us. Would you stand together? Charlie, you can sing longer tomorrow. Now after the Sabbath... No, 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 don't do that to me. <laughs> there it is, there it is. I want to I end at the beginning. This is where we go tomorrow. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Get yourself ready. Get yourself ready. I don't think I've ever had uh, a holy week where I've lived in so much Uh, I'm going to use a worldly word, energy and anticipation. I'm telling you, every time I've been with the saints this week, I've felt, man, I felt that just electrical fire of God. Telling you, my heart was just burning, 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 burning. It's As we watched the play Shalom, my heart was burning. When we gathered on Good Friday, my heart was burning. When we broke the bread and drank the cup, my heart was burning, 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 burning. If you need to come for prayer, he's already given you the sign and the signal. Come on. If you need to come for prayer, come on tonight. Come on. Principalities and powers are defeated. I know what I didn't do. I I know what I didn't do. I left out a piece. Let me get it. Hallelujah. Ooh, I'm glad you left it up there. Watch this. No, I I left it out because I didn't put it up there. (laughs) Amen. Don't don't mind because I left myself time and this is worth it. In the days of Noah... While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now listen, don't miss it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
And then he qualifies it. I don't mean the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal to God for a clean heart through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what it says. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I got living inside of this for a minute. Do you know what baptism is? It's warfare. Every baptism is an act of war because the flood was an act of holy war on behalf of God, not against man, but against principalities and powers in rebellion against him. And every person who is baptized is baptized into the name of Christ, the authority of Christ, the power of Christ. And you, and you have the name of Christ put on you. And every emergence from the water is an emergence of a person who is declaring on earth into the heavens, not here, not here, not on this life, not on this life. 